0: morning. We're in uh, Joshua chapter 9 and 10. This morning I got to the beach and, um, and I started in Joshua 10 instead of Joshua 9. We, have, uh, we drove up Friday morning to um, visit our son and got caught in that mudslide. Not actually caught in it, but we were stopped uh, on the mud, in the mudslide. It took us 11 hours to get up to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. So when you say your, your car is your home, we've spent a lot of time in the last two days in our car. Um, But I got up and I was so tired and confused, I started in Joshua 10 and then Cynthia McPhee at the end of the message was walking out with me and asked me if I was going to change before my second message and I said, yeah, why are you asking? He says, you might want to put up your fly. So it's been a rough morning, but I think I got it all together. We're going to start in Joshua 9 and and, and the fly's all good. So here we go. So in Joshua chapter 9 and Joshua chapter 10, we're continuing our series in the book of Joshua. And we learn again a new, a new valuable lesson about moving forward with God. The whole book of Joshua is about moving your faith forward with God. And there's going to be many obstacles. Last week we looked at three steps forward, two steps back. That there will be failure that you're not always moving forward in the Christian life. Actually, you're sometimes moving backwards, but that's okay. Lewis points out that's really the law of undulation. You're undulating your way in deeper relationship with Christ. You're going up and down in peaks and troughs, peaks and troughs. We talked about that, and God often uses the trough periods in your life as much as he uses the peak periods of your life to teach us invaluable lessons to trust him. And so we do make mistakes, but the question is, how do we get back up and keep going? And that was earlier, that was Joshua chapter 8 and 7. Here in Joshua chapter 9 and 10, we learn another invaluable lesson about moving forward. And another obstacle is facing the great enemy, the adversary in your life. That there is an evil force, whether you hold to a view that there is an actual evil one, Or not, There is an evil force. There really is. The Bible teaches us that there's a great adversary and he wants to push us back. He wants to hold us back. And the two ways he does that is through deception and intimidation. And we learn that from Joshua chapter 9, the lesson of deception. And in Joshua chapter 10, we learn the lesson of intimidation. And so we learn two great lessons out of the story of Israel pushing forward to a promised land. Pushing forward to what God has for them, his presence. And yet you're going to have to deal with an enemy, an adversary. And it's not an easy subject, let me tell you. It's not easy to deal with that. Um, Back in the 5th century BC, there was a field manual written on war in China, possibly by this military strategist and general. His name was Sun Zhu, Master Sun. And it outlines the military strategy and tactics. Basically, your strength as an army does not lie in being more powerful on the battlefield or even more numerous, he would say. But he would say that your success is your strategy, your knowledge, your preparation, good leadership, understanding your strengths and weaknesses, and being prepared, and also being very cunning. Using the art of deception against your enemy, appearing to be bigger than really who you are and how you how you present yourself. And here's two quotes out of that field manual, and I reviewed it again this week. I'd written written it back when I was in college in studying spiritual warfare, and some of the um, the lessons that we learn from Scripture seem to. Uh, be found even in this manual in the 5th century B.C., but he says all warfare is based on deception. He says, hence, when able to attack, we must seem unable. When using (coughs) our forces, we must seem inactive. When we are near, we make the enemy believe we are far away. When far away, we must make the enemy believe we are near. It's all deception, smoke and mirrors. Another quote by uh, Master Sun is that in war, then let your great object be victory, not the lengthy campaign. In other words, hit them and hit them hard. And what we learn in Joshua chapter 9 and 10 is that Israel faced a great enemy. And the enemy did two things in 9, created a smokescreen, a deception, which misled them. And in chapter 10, they came together by force and they tried to intimidate them. The adversary in our lives will do both of those things. I found these scriptures in the New Testament that seem to relate to that. The first is this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 14 says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. In other words, he is not the light. Jesus is the light. Behold, Jesus comes into the world as a light, and the world is full of darkness. They couldn't comprehend the light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So what does Satan do? What does what this evil adversary do? He appears as light in order to throw you off and deceive you. The second thing I found in Scripture is in 1 Peter, and in First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. I was going through my Instagrams, and I like this one Instagram, uh, animals life. And it's, it's just pictures of animals. It's beautiful pictures of animals that are captured in a moment. And this one is a beautiful lion with this mane. It is He has his front paws crossed like he is just so cool. This is the king of the jungle. This is the lion. And he's just looking, in, and the pictures captures him there. And he's just powerful, but he's got his paws crossed like, I am so cool. And I thought of 1 Peter chapter 5, 8. Be alert, be sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Like he will just, in a moment, change from that position to a roar that will scare you and intimidate you. And what I want you to know this morning is that both of those tactics that are used against Israel are the same two tactics that are used against us in our spiritual battle, and we can defeat both of them. Let's look out. The first one is in chapter 9. We're going to begin there. And in 9 verse 1, it says, Now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan and the hill country and the lowland and on the coast and the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezzarites, the Hittites, the Jebusites heard of it. They gather themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and Israel. They recognize that Israel is coming into their land and God chose this land for Israel. We don't understand all of the tactics of why God was behind all this. We still don't understand this. We're dealing with a people that had just spent 400 years in slavery. They weren't looking for a war. That wasn't their objective. But God had a greater sovereign plan that he's working out in scripture, that he wanted Israel to become a great nation so that they would bless God. And by blessing God, Reveal the glory of God to all the other nations. This is what it looks like to be in relationship with God on the face of the earth. And through Israel would come the Messiah, Jesus. A great plan of redemption being worked out. And here in this little part of redemption history, we have these encounters, these warfares, and God wants Israel to go in, and he wants to clear the land, and he wants them to occupy Canaan, and that's the promised land. And so they gave, these armies gather, and they're going to fight this fight, this war against Israel. But notice what happens. They gather together, and in verse 3, when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, the other two conquests, they also acted, notice this, craftfully, and set out as envoys took worn out sacks on their donkeys, wineskins worn out and torn mended, worn out patched sandals on their feet, worn out clothes on themselves, and all the bread of their provision, provisions was now dry and became crumbled. And they went to Joshua to the camp of Gilgog and said to them, to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country, and therefore we want to make a covenant with you. What is wrong with this picture? They acted craftily. Gibeon was within the Canaanite region. Gibeon was one of those nations that was going to fight against Israel. They didn't want the battle. They didn't want to lose their lives. So what they did is they acted craftily, deceptively, and appeared to be a country from a far distance, knowing that Israel could make peace with a country from a far distance, according to Deuteronomy chapter 20, but must go to battle with any country that's within Canaan. So if they could appear to be from coming from the outside and now coming to make peace, they would preserve their people. And they acted in a deceptive way and Israel takes the bait. And we learn the story in chapter 9 of how Israel takes this bait and is is misled. And here's the principle. We have to be careful of deception. Deception is something that happens in our lives. You don't see it, and you don't expect it. That's why it's deception. You don't see it coming, and you most certainly don't even expect it, and all of a sudden it's upon you. And it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the same passage where it talks about Satan being this evil one, who is deceiving himself, disguising him as an angel of light, early on it says, be careful, be careful that you don't fall away and are misled, it says, and deceived by the serpent. Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse six, 3 is exactly the reference to Genesis chapter 3, verse 3, when Satan appears as a serpent. Now, we know who Satan is. He's Lucifer. He is this beautiful angel that God created. He created an angelic force to worship and serve him. And then he created the world and he created humankind. And before he created the world and humankind, at some point we learn in Ezekiel and also in Isaiah that Lucifer, this beautiful angel, decided that he wanted to have a throne that was higher than God's. And he wanted his throne to rise up above the stars in the heavens above God. And he powered up over God and acted in a way that demonstrated all-out warfare against God. God judged him. He took a third of the angels. They became demons and they fell. And the first time we we find out about who he is and his influence is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 3, when it says the serpent who is more crafty than any, anybody. More crafty. The word is deception. And that's exactly what's happening in Joshua chapter 9. The Gibeonites act, this, act in a way that's very crafty. They, they appear to be... Have, they, they appear as though they have come from a long distance. They're wearing tattered clothes. Their food is now dry and moldy. It appears as though they've been on a long journey and they come to Joshua and they want to make peace. And they say in verse 9, your servants have come from a very long com- far country because of the fame of the Lord of your God. We have heard the report of him and what you have done in Egypt. And they, we're asking for peace. And it says in the scriptures that Israel makes three fatal flaws against this deceptive move. And it's the same three fatal moves that we often make when it comes to spiritual warfare and deception. And here they are. The first is, it says, without really any kind of an inquiry process or any kind of an evaluation, it says that they just entered into this this uh, contract, this peace agreement. It says right here that they just jumped right into this things and they agreed to live with them in peace. And they said, we'll go ahead and make a peace contract with you. They acted hastily in a situation that probably needed a little time. And oftentimes our adversary tries to get us to act quickly without thinking through what our options really are, the thinking through, is this the right thing? Should I be doing this? Should I be about ready to make this decision? Should I be thinking about this? Should I do this? And oftentimes, when we act in a hastily way, we learn that we have been deceived. And they find out, after in the story of chapter 9, they get word that, oh my goodness, they're talking amongst themselves, and they discover these are the Gibeonites... They're from Canaan. They've deceived us. Now, it works out okay for Israel because they become servants of Israel. And they have formed peace, but they didn't follow God's command. They acted hastily. The second thing I notice is they they never questioned the outfits or the moldy bread. They never really thought about it. Is something fishy going on here? I mean, if this is a great country from out of the area that wants to make peace with Israel and put its best foot forward, why would it come with tattered clothing and moldy bread? Why not put on the best outfits and why not present something of value before Israel to show we would like to make peace and we are bringing our best before you? There was something fishy fishy about the whole scenario, right? I mean, you, th- you think about it. That's just not the way you would want to come to another country in order to form a peace treaty. It just was off. Something wasn't right. And that's often another indicator that you're being deceived. Something's just fishy about this. Um, I'm just going to push through. I don't care. I'm just going to keep moving forward. And we often do that without going, wait a minute here. Does that make good sense? Have we really thought this through? Where are these people coming from? Why not a line of questioning? So you've come from a long distance. Tell us about your country. Where are you from? I mean, why didn't they do any level of investigation to learn about these people? We often, if we, not, if we act hastily, we jump into something. And if we aren't asking the right questions, and it's something's wrong, but we just keep going. Have You ever been in that situation? I know it's a little, it's not totally right, but I'm moving forward anyway. I'm in a relationship. Yeah, there's a lot of things that aren't right about it, but I'm going to keep pushing forward. Wait a minute here. Think it through. What is the truth behind this? What is the right next move for me? Should I be in this relationship? Should I push through? business deal, same thing. A good business deal has to be thought through. You don't make it hastily. You ask good questions. This is something fishy. Oh, don't mind about it, don't read the contract. Don't worry about that. Everything's fine. We'll shake on it. Wait a minute here. There's a lot of deception in our lives because we're just not thinking it through. Here's a third one. They didn't seek the counsel of the Lord, verse 14. Do you see that? It says they never asked the counsel of the Lord. They never came to the Lord and asked for prayer and prayed and asked God, what is going on here? Is this the right move? You never make a move without prayer. You must seek wise counsel. Proverbs tells us in verse 19, verse 2, desire without knowledge is no good. Desire without knowledge is no good. It's just not going to work for you. John chapter 8, 32, Jesus says, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. See, you're set free by the truth of God's word. Satan wants to enslave you by a deception. And you might be believing something right now, and you think it's the right thing. You may be believing this is the right course of of action, but it's a deception. And you think it's the truth, but again, it's deception, so you're being convinced it's the truth, but it's really a lie. And if Satan can get you to believe something that's not true, you act on it. You act on it because you, you think it's true. So that's what Satan does. That's one of his key ways in which I think he slips us up. John chapter eight forty four. 44, so clear. Satan is a liar. Everything out of his mouth is a lie. He is not to be trusted. Nothing he says. The thoughts that come into your mind that are contrary to the truth of God's word come from a lie. And yet sometimes we just kind of manipulate that. Is that really true? We're right back in the garden. Did God really say that? Is that what he really meant? Doesn't he really want my benefit? Doesn't he want my happiness? Doesn't he want what's best for me? Doesn't he want me to be happy? And so we begin this line of thinking, where are we? Yes, of course he does. We're being deceived. We got to go back. Don't make a quick decision. I was talking to someone at the beach today. Difficult situation. Been through a hard situation for a long time. Now feeling very, very dry in a work environment and feeling kind of in a dry place with the Lord. I said, don't make a covenant. Don't make any covenant with anybody too hastily. Think it through wait. See, we sign peace treaties all the time with the wrong thing. And we sign up with the wrong thing. That's deception. So hang in there. This is a tough story. It's one of my dear friends from college. We were in fraternity brothers. He played for the college football team. And we used to get together and have these discipleship meetings. And we didn't know where to meet. So we found a place on campus. And I found this room that looked empty. And we sat down at all these tables, and all of a sudden, someone served us a craft of coffee and two cups, and we thought, wow, this is great. You didn't have to pay for it. I had no idea I was in the faculty lounge. <laughs> so where do you think we met the next week? And we just kept meeting there, free coffee. It was great. Nobody kicked us out. I guess I looked like a faculty member, but um, I, I, I must have missed it that it said faculty lounge at the front, but I, we just went, walked in, and there we were, and we met week after week after week, and and it was wonderful, but love my friend Scott, and we built some great relationship, and we talked through the word. And, and uh, he, he graduated, I graduated, and he married, and I w- married, and we kind of went our separate ways, and we discovered that we were living pretty close together, and we got together a couple times, and then he called with the, with the, the despair. I could hear it in his voice that he had made a mistake. He had he'd been lured into a deception in Vegas on a business trip, An innocent cocktail led to a dance with a woman that's not his wife. And now he's standing looking at the reality that he's going to walk away from his marriage, his wife's pregnant, and she's going to walk away from her husband, and they're going to start a new life together. And I'm thinking, Scott, don't you see, this is not going to work. What what is going to prevent this from happening again? How can you go into a relationship on the basis of deception and it not happening again? What is going to stop her from doing it one more time to you or you doing it to her one more time? He didn't get it. Couldn't see it. Met with him. Poured my heart out to him. Loved this guy. Met several times. He was in Florida with his family and his in-laws, and he was telling me that he was going to tell them and make the decision. And I just said, hold on a second. I don't know what to do. I can't convince you. So I pulled out the only book I had on demon possession or demonic warfare. It was called The Adversary by Mark Bubeck. So I grabbed it off my shelf. I at my home, and I had read through this, and I was taking a class on this by Neil Anderson at Talbot. And so let me just pray for you. So he's on the phone. I'm on the phone, and through, he's in Florida. I'm in California, and I just said, Heavenly Father, I bow and worship and praise before you. I cover myself with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and my protection during this time of prayer. I surrender myself completely and unreservedly in every area of my life to you, to yourself. I do take a stand against all workings of Satan that would hinder me in this time of prayer, and I address myself only to the true living God and refuse any, refuse any involvement of Satan in my prayer. I'm just, I'm just reading a prayer. I'm just, that's all I'm doing. And then it seems a little weird, but this is what it says, Satan. And I, I said, "Just pray this out loud, Scott. Just I don't I don't care what you do. Just pray this prayer. I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to leave my presence with all your demons, and I bring the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ between us. Amen." And I just said, "Amen." And it was almost like I was talking to a different person. Like all of a sudden. His eyes were open. He recognized what he was doing and he said, I'm making a big mistake. I said, I know you are. I've been trying to tell you that for a long time. I said, what are you going to do? He says, as soon as I come home, I'm going to sit down. We're going to work this thing out. I'm going forward in my marriage. I'm going to save this marriage. He is married, has two kids to this day. Because he believed the truth and was aware of the deception in his life that was misleading him, that would have ultimately led him in a decision and a track in his life so radically different. Deception. It's all around us. And he's just a normal guy, just like any one of us. And yet we find in Ephesians chapter six, when we put on the full armor of God, the last thing Paul says after we put on the breastplate and the the sword of the spirit and the shoes of peace all the, the helmet of salvation. We put on the full equipment. It says we pray and we pray and we pray. You pray that God will open your eyes or someone else's eyes if you're encouraging somebody to know who they truly are. See, we've got to get to that point. Joshua and Israel made three critical errors in deception. We have to be careful and apply the truth. Let me just give you one more Joshua chapter 10. So here's what happens they form the peace treaty. They have to live with the consequence of their peace treaty for the rest of their lives. They live with the consequence that they're now in relationship with Gideon and the Gideonites when they weren't supposed to be. And God works it out, He always does, He's still moving us forward. But in Joshua chapter 10, it says, Now it came about that Adonai, Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai, had utterly destroyed it, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land. So what happens is they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, because it was greater than Ai, and its men were mighty. So what they did is, therefore, Adonai Zeta, king of Jerusalem, sent word to all the other kings, and now five city-states, five enclaves, five warring armies gang up against Israel. You think Jericho was difficult. You think Ai was difficult. Imagine five armies coming against you. Powerful armies all at once. This is intimidation. This is the second strategy that the adversary has against us is to try to intimidate us, make us fear fear them because they're bigger and more powerful. What is it in your life right now that you're afraid of that is bigger than you? And it says to Joshua, I love this, do not fear for I have given them into your hands. Joshua verse 7, he goes From Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the valiant warriors, they just get up and go. They're going. They're going for it. And then when we find he's not going to give in to this intimidation because here's what he hears from God. See, God is the greater one in your life. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The victory is already yours. You have to claim it. You have to believe that God is bigger. And here in this passage, we learn some things about the greatness of God versus the five warring armies against you. Look at what we find. First of all, God says, don't fear. So why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Do not fear for I have already given them into your hands. Verse eight, verse 10, the Lord then goes ahead and here are these armies. Could you imagine all these armies coming together? They don't know each other. Now it says the Lord confounds them before Israel, and Israel slays them, and then they begin to defeat, and they're defeated, and they start running away. So God confuses these armies. They hadn't worked together. They don't know what's going on. They hadn't read the manual, right? Art of War. They have no idea what to do, and they're probably fighting against each other. There's chaos, and God brings confusion. And all of a sudden, Israel walks in, walks 25 miles uphill, and it's now becoming nighttime. So they pursue them. There's a war. They are defeated, and they run away. And on their way down the hill, the defeated armies of the five city-states, God sends large stones from heaven. How about that? Verse 11. Just starts dropping hailstones right on top of the army. Just not, not, to Israel, but just the, the adversary in your life is getting dropped on from heaven by hailstone. That's the power of God. And he, Jesus went to the cross to defeat our great adversary so that it's like a hailstone dropped on his head so that he cannot defeat you. And then he, this is great. He keeps going. So Joshua speaks to the Lord, verse 12, in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel, he says in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, verse 12. O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. God was able, literally, I don't... I think what it's saying here is that God literally slowed the day down so there would be enough sunlight for Israel to accomplish what he needed to accomplish, demonstrating the power of God over nature, over individuals, over an adversary. We see over and over and over again the power and strength of God in this passage. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests in the Lord. Elisha finds himself against a great war and there's a battle about ready to pursue. He's going to pursue this battle and he looks like he's outnumbered. And then the Lord says to him, opens his eyes, looks, and he sees the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around him. God's army. God's army, and you of God's army. Don't fear. God will confound the enemy. He will drop hailstones on your adversary. He will slow down the day in order for you to accomplish what you need to accomplish. So I was hearing about Chuck and Shelby Reed this week, and my heart just sunk as I heard the story that they got news that their son, Henry, was diagnosed with leukemia. And the same day, he was taken to Chalk Hospital to begin, literally, to begin uh, evaluation and treatment and just right in. I mean, they just, write, they didn't have time to think about it. Could you imagine something more overwhelming, fearful? Five city-states coming against you. I mean, little Henry now with leukemia, and they're facing this. And I I didn't know really what to say to Chuck. I I was going to text him all day, and I couldn't, and I just didn't know what to say. And I was thinking, gosh, I'm praying for you, but there's got to be something more. And I said, I was standing with you. I'm standing with you right now. And I prayed this morning that little Henry would just fly through, that he would fly through treatment, that he would just right through treatment, and God would bring healing. So what I prayed, Chuck, for your son. The Word came back that day that they found out that the kind of leukemia that he has is the best treatable leukemia for a child. Already good news in the story. But yet they face an adversary and a difficulty far greater than I can even imagine. And my next words in my text were, and I also have some words for our Lord. I'm angry. And he responded back, I I appreciate so much your words because I am angry, and I'm frustrated, and I'm confused. I totally get it. I totally understand that. And yet in this text, with all honesty, he said, but I'm really trying to allow my faith to guide me in this process. And what I learned as I sat and thought about the great adversaries of our life, Is that suffering is often a very intimidating force against us. It's a powerful force that wants to dominate you and make you afraid and hold you back and push you and shove you around. And yet, victory is found in the Lord. So I was reading this little book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It was written in 1932 called Creation, Fall, and Temptation. It's a series of lectures that he gave at the University of Berlin. This is 15 years before Dietrich Bonhoeffer would be arrested for resisting the Third Reich, being lined up in front of a firing squad and martyred for his own faith. So 15 years before, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is describing... What he sees as the great temptation, and that is to give into the adversary through suffering. Interesting. Interesting line of thinking. He says, and he quotes Martin Luther, he says that suffering is Satan's disturbing creature, creation. That's what Satan does. He disturbs creation, and he causes havoc by dropping sin in. And suffering is a result of that. But, listen, listen. What God does with suffering, according to Dietrich Bonhoeffer in these lectures, is that he uses this for our benefit. To purify us of the sin and rebellion in our own lives. That was hard to read. It's hard to read when you're looking at someone that is in so much pain and suffering and looking at them going they didn't do anything wrong they don't deserve this why is this happening to them and then he points out first peter chapter 4 verse 1 therefore since Christ has suffered in the flesh see Christ has suffered he's the one who suffered with us suffered for us he understands our suffering Arm yourselves with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Has ceased from sin. See, Bonhoeffer goes on to say in 1932, before he suffers himself, that it's a judgment against our flesh. Suffering is a judgment against our flesh, and we need that judgment. We need something in our lives to judge the flesh, to root out rebellion, to root out this act of rebellion that's caused by wandering from God and acting independent from God, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We need something to root us out. And Bonhoeffer says, sometimes suffering causes that. As hard as that is to hear in our lives. We don't want it. I don't ask for it. I would never say that to somebody in the midst of their suffering. But I'm trying to get a biblical perspective on a great adversary that's brought about suffering and he uses intimidation to push us around. And all of a sudden we learn that God is now turning that around and saying, don't let him push you around. When God seated Christ at the right hand and conferred on him all authority, he seated us On his right hand, conferred on us through Christ, all authority because we are together with Christ. We have his authority. Colossians 2.10. In him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. He has it. And he has our best in mind. And if you're facing a severe fear in your life, you're in the midst of something that is so amazingly powerful, an army that's five times your size. Know that God will drop hailstones on it. He will, because He has your best in mind. So, there are two things we learned this morning about how to confront our adversary in order to move forward. You've got to learn these rooting out deception, being aware of deception. Honoring the truth in your life. And the second is, do not stand afraid. Do not be dismayed at any force or power, fearing an evil adversary that's pushing against you in any way in your life, whatever it is. So I finish the story. We close in prayer. James comes up and prays for healing for Henry. And a man comes up, a friend of Gus Samples. Actually, a a distant relative. And he tells me his own story. They had eight years with their son. The first four, because he was born with half a heart, he was in and out of the hospital. His name's Robert. And they got through that, and he contracted cancer. And they had four more years with him. He showed me a picture of Robert. He says, I understand what you're saying. I wanted to run away. I wanted to walk away from the church. We tend to isolate ourselves, and this is exactly what a roaring lion wants you to do. He wants to isolate the weak so that he can prowl. right? He wants to get you. And all he has is a bark. He cannot touch you. He cannot touch you. And there he was, standing in our church, at the beach, believing that God is using this in his life, however... This is, this is just radically intense to bring him into a closer relationship with him. Began to share my own story. With our son. You know, when you go through a difficult situation that doesn't just get totally healed, you live with it the rest of your life. You know that. You're not out of the woods, really. None of us are. So the three of us stood there, arm in arm, Gus and my new friend, and and I was telling them that we live day to day, just trusting God, trusting God. Keep going, keep Him going, keep Him strong. It's not easy. Depression, mental illness, cancer, all sorts of difficulties that we face. You continue on. You just keep going. And I thank the Lord every day. It's not perfect healing. It's not perfect scenario. It's not all done. It's not all better. We don't have it all figured out. We live with it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would learn in the most difficult way, radical way, as he sat isolated in a prison, wrote some of the most powerful works, cost of Discipleship, Life Together, to teach Christians how to endure hardship and receive the grace of Christ and then was lined up and was murdered because all he did was stand up for Jesus Christ. Didn't work out that great for him, did it? And yet he stands as a a testimony that suffering roots out in us the flesh so that all is left is this utter dependence on God. It's what you have. It's all you have. It's really at the end, that's all you have. So, Father, our hearts are broken for Chuck and Shelby this morning. We don't understand the pain they're going through. We thank you, Father, for that little teeny tiny small but powerful and amazing miracle that this leukemia is very treatable and we're praying for total healing. We thank you for this little girl in the Heitzler family, their granddaughter for her eyes to open, for her to see her mother for the first time since this accident, and we pray for complete healing. We know there's a lot of hardship and difficulty in our church this morning. There's breakups. There's loneliness. There's contracts that have been made that should should not have been made. There's sorts of things that Gosh, we wish weren't in our church and in our body, and yet they're there. And, Father, we're pressing through to trust you. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the suffering that comes into our life is a judgment against the flesh. It's a judgment against that. And all who have suffered have ceased from sin. Father, may you bring us through the other side. May we be strong. May we face the adversary with strength and confidence the greater is He that is in us than He is in the world. The victory has already been won. He has no power over us. He cannot change us. He cannot force us to do anything. We stand with the truth. We stand with you and with a community that loves you. And you just keep pushing us forward, Father. One step at a time. Amen.